Well, there's a number one bestseller out entitled Heaven is for Real. I don't know if you have had the privilege to buy it or to read it, but uh, it's been turned into a movie. And uh, it's no accident that they are marketing this movie around Easter. I think they're hoping to capitalize on most of us who are Christians uh, to go and support that movie with our financial dollars and to see the movie. Uh, The movie is an interesting movie. It's based upon what they claim in the book to be a true life story event of a young boy named Colin who is four years old who has an emergency appendectomy surgery. And uh, during the surgery, it is told in the book and in the movie that Colin is transported from his body. And uh, it is a miracle, they say, that he survived the surgery. And after the surgery, having been released and a couple of months after having been home and recovered from the surgery, what his parents did not expect was that Collins began to describe scenes of heaven and began to talk about things that he experienced while he had an outer body experience or a near-death experience where he was transported by Jesus into heaven. And uh, this little four-year-old, he says, as he was leaving his body while he was under surgery, he could see his mom in one room and his dad in another, and his dad was yelling at God, and his mother was over here in this room. And he says, as he was ascending, Jesus came down with the angels and took him up to heaven, and he was allowed by the Lord to go into the very throne room of God. He said he could identify Jesus because he said Jesus' dad was the one in fully white robe and he had a purple sash around his neck. He said he could also identify Jesus by what he called the marks on Jesus. And the father tried to get him to explain what the marks were and he finally said, well, dad, here's what the marks are. He said, the marks are those on his hands and he pointed to his hands and he pointed to his feet and he said, by those marks, I could tell and I knew that it was Jesus. Well, once the story got out in this small town in Nebraska and began to hit the newspapers and the media, they were very reluctant in this little four-year-old story, as you can imagine. And as the media and the press were beginning to, you know, sort of doubt and discuss and and all of that began to hit the fan, inside of the, the clip that I saw, now you probably wonder, how do I know this? I didn't watch the movie and I didn't read the book, but I did see two clips. Uh, one by a secular uh, promoter and one by a Christian promoter trying to encourage people on the internet to watch the movie. And in the, in the clips that I watched, father and son are having discussion about the lack of belief in the young man's experience. And the young man, Cotton, uh, uh, Colin, turns to his dad, Colton, I mean, turns to his father and said, they don't believe in me, do they, dad? To which the father said, some people might be afraid to believe. And then there's a couple other things in the clip that go on. And the last phrase that is used by the father in the clip, the father quotes this this ending clip. He says, I see it, so I believe it. I see it, so I believe it. And I thought that was interesting. That says, in other words, that in order for us to believe, we have to see And I don't know what you think about the book, and I don't really know what you think about the movie, and chances are there's some of us in an audience this large that some of us have either read the book or gone to see the movie, and that's okay. But I'm here to tell you that what he says in that book, from what I have learned of the contents of the book, the young man has no biblical knowledge or understanding as to what the Bible says in regard to heaven, the angels, or Jesus. Everything in the book 
is just completely fabricated. There are lies upon lies upon lies, and I'm convinced that Satan is at the root of this book and the movie. I'm going to tell you why, because I think it's intentional being proposed or being brought out during Easter, trying to sway many of us who are believers in Christ and his resurrection to attend the movie so they can infuse in our belief system some, some incredible four-year-old view of what heaven is like that are really anti what the scriptures indicate. And it's a form of deception. And the Christian network that was pushing the movie, uh, somewhat of a charismatic type of a, a program, was encouraging the believers that watch their network to go see it because it will increase your faith. And they were saying that seeing such a movie would, would enhance our experience of Easter. Well, that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus says in his word in John 20. Jesus says to Thomas, he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In other words, he indicates to us that there is a time and a moment in which we're not going to be able to see the visible presence of Christ. And he says, those of us who now are here in this life, who are void of the physical presence of Christ, are going to be faced the reality is that while we may not be able to see him physically, we are still going to be challenged with the reality of Christ and to put our faith in him, to put our trust in him, to believe in him. Do we have to see him in order to believe in him? Well, I don't really have to physically see him. All I have to do is go to the scriptures. And the scriptures enable us and empower us as we read the genuine, long-lasting, biblical, Holy Spirit-inspired record of the resurrection of Christ and the afterlife. We get a better glimpse of Christ than we would any book about heaven from a four-year-old or any movie that Hollywood is trying to promote, encouraging us to watch. And so I want us to go to the scripture this morning and take a look at John chapter 20 and look at the verse that I've quoted to you, and then several others, in regard to the, the one disciple's journey of faith. We're going to look at one disciple's journey of faith. Now, we're going to mention all of the disciples in their journey of faith, but I want to highlight specifically one disciple in his journey of faith. His name is Thomas. And when most of us hear his name, we always associate Thomas with doubt. Because as soon as I said his name, most of us, ah, I know him, he's doubting Thomas. But the reality is that Thomas was not the only one who disbelieved or who doubted in the, the resurrection of Christ. He wasn't the only one. Every single one of the disciples were so perplexed, they were in a crisis of belief that all of them even his most loyal, most inner circle disciples, after his death and his burial, doubted his resurrection. Not just Thomas. But we're going to highlight Thomas in this text. So if you would stand with me, let's read John chapter 20. It's a long narrative today, but we're going to read it and then we're going to take a look at, at it uh, piece by piece. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Pretty bold statement. And then he said to Thomas, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 26, eight days later, 
Notice, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to be able to stand in honor of your word and to read from your holy word today. These are ancient scriptures that have surpassed time and criticism. Uh, they are straight from your Holy Spirit through the divine inspiration of the written pen through men that wrote out for us the exact facts and details in regard to this journey of faith in which your disciples in the inner circle, even the, the most inner circle disciples, struggled with the understanding of the resurrection. It's no reason that even those of us who have not seen him physically still struggle today. And yet you have said that we are blessed if we who have not seen still believe. But God, I pray that you would bless us today through the reading of your word, through the studying of these scriptures, and that you might place in us a faith that is so strong and so solid that we don't need to look to outside sources like books and movies to affirm our faith, but we can go straight to your holy, inspired, and infallible word and there find the truths that more than anchor our faith, our trust, and our belief in the fact that Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead. And because he's alive, we have the promise of hope, of victory, and of an afterlife that far exceeds any life that we have in this planet. So God, strengthen us through this study today. Strengthen our faith. Encourage us and fill us with hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark read many of the passages, or some of the passages we're going to be talking about, but in John chapter 20, it's interesting in verse 1, there are a lot of things that begin to happen and begin to develop. Uh, we learn that before John 21, verse, chapter 20, verse 1, that Christ, in verse 19, has been arrested on Thursday night. He's been tried throughout that late evening. He's then been judged by a jury of his peers when he was subject to the Jews themselves who said, crucify him, crucify him. They then punished him by causing him or making him then travel that journey down what we call the Via della Rosa, the streets of Jerusalem, to the place called the Skull, and there they crucified Jesus. It wasn't long after his crucifixion that he gave up his spirit and he dies. To confirm or affirm his death, they take a spear and they pierce his side and blood begins to flow mingled with water and that's a sign that he is in fact dead. They take his lifeless body down from the cross and they carry it to a borrowed tomb and they place his body there, wrap it with some linen. They don't have time to anoint the body as a true to Jewish tradition and custom because it's very close to the Passover. So they leave his body there and the enemy, the Jewish 
elite roll a large stone over the entrance of the tomb and they place guards there to ensure the safety of the body of Christ. And because you see it's the Sabbath on that Saturday after the death and the burial of Christ on that late Friday night, just before dawn, there's not a whole lot of time. And so because time is pressing, there's a lot of things that are done very quickly. Well, during that time as they finish everything and everything's been concluded, we discover that, that there's a dilemma with several of the people that were a part of the life of Christ and his crucifixion. For example, have you ever thought about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they did on that first Sabbath after they had crucified Christ? I mean, when Christ died on the cross, we know that the veil in the temple that separated the people from the Holy of Holies was rent in two. And as a result of that, that must have disrupted their observation of the Sabbath, much less the Passover that they were in the process of celebrating just just after the crucifixion of Christ. There was a dilemma for them because there was, there was never a time in the history of the, of the temple and the Holy of Holies where the curtain had been torn in two. And so there was a, what do we do with that? There was confusion and disruption that was going on. Not to mention the disciples who had left everything as we studied last week to follow Christ. And now all of a sudden, all their hopes and their dreams and aspirations are gone. This Jesus, whom they believed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, sure, there were times when they had incredible faith and times where they didn't have much faith, but they had put everything, lock, stock, and barrel into this Jesus and the promise of him being the Messiah and following his teachings and being his disciples. They had left their businesses and their families to follow him, and now he was dead. What would they do now? Where would they go? They had given up their business. There was no business left. So they were in a dilemma, and they were discussing among themselves. The Bible says in a place of hiding. They were in a very comfortable place, but they were in a place in which they believed they were safe. There was a hideout. It kind of reminds me of a kid when we used to play hide-and-go-seek. They were trying to elude and evade their captors. They believed that soon they too would be arrested like Jesus and wrongly convicted and eventually crucified as well. So they were in fear for their lives. Until that is John 20, verse 1. You see, that's a long 24 hours on that Saturday. Been silent, there's been nothing happening. The streets of Jerusalem are pretty much empty. Not a whole lot of motion and commotion going on on the Sabbath. You see, it was against the law. And in the quietness of that Saturday, finally it is erupted by the conclusion of the Sabbath on that first Sunday morning, which is the reason why we worship on Sunday. Just before daybreak, John tells us in John 21 that a lady named Mary Magdalene, another lady named Salome, and a couple other women have gotten some things together in order to anoint the body of Jesus. You see, they were not able to anoint it in the proper Jewish custom, and so they wanted to go to the temple to make sure that the body of Christ was anointed properly, and they were making their way by the light of the moon just before daybreak, and Mark tells us that on the way to the tomb, they were wondering and discussing among themselves how these women were going to move the stone to administer the body of Jesus until they get there. And they discover upon their arrival that the stone has already been moved. And as they approach the tomb, the Bible says, John 20, says to us that they see that it is empty. Now, Mary Magdalene knows exactly what to do, John tells us in chapter 20. She runs to the man and the only man whom she believes can make something happen. 
I mean, his name is Simon Peter. He was an eccentric guy who was very emotional, who took the bull by the horns and made something happen. And she knew that if she had given this information to Simon Peter, that more than likely he would do something about it. So she decides to run to where Simon Peter is held out with the other disciples, and she bursts through the door, and she tells the disciples who are there, and particularly Simon Peter, we've gone to the tomb, somebody has stolen his body, and we have no idea where he is. Well, Simon Peter does take matter in his own hands, except he takes an accomplice named John. And John and Simon Peter, he tells us in chapter 20, have a foot race to the tomb. Well, I'm not quite sure which one was better fit than the other. Some say that one was better fit. Some say that one was older and one was younger. I would hate to think that a younger man could outrun an older guy, wouldn't you? Those of you who are older, can I get an amen to that? There's still fight in some of us old dogs, right? That's right. That's what I thought. But nevertheless, we are told that John outruns Simon Peter. And he gets to the tomb first. And when he gets there, he stops, and he doesn't go in. You see, he's hesitant. He knows that something is different, and he knows that something has changed, and he wants to make sure that maybe he waits for Simon Peter. We're not sure why he stays at the entrance, and he doesn't go in. And all of a sudden, Simon Peter, who's the guy who's the action guy who, who, who does stuff first and then regrets it later, just bursts through the open grave and goes in there. And John tells us in chapter 20 that he sees the linen that was wrapped around the body of Christ, and he sees the linen that was wrapped around his face, and it's neatly folded here, and it's neatly folded there. And he looks there for a second, and he's perplexed. He doesn't know what to think. And by that time, John, who's at the entrance, decides to come in and join Simon Peter. And when they come together inside of the tomb, John also sees the same linen that's there. And the Bible says that John saw and believed. Think about that. He saw and believed. What did he see? He saw the grave clothes that were there. The linens that were wrapped around the body of Christ were neatly folded in, in, right there where the body of Christ was laying. And, and he saw that and he believed. No one stolen the body of Christ. Now, to what extent did he believe? That is up for debate. But I believe that he not only believed that the body of Christ had not been stolen, wasn't he with Jesus on several occasions when Christ raised people from the dead? Did he believe in the power of Jesus to resurrect the dead? He did. So why, if he couldn't resurrect someone else from the dead, couldn't he resurrect himself from the dead? And he saw and he believed, and I'm convinced Simon Peter believed. And if anybody needed to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it was Simon Peter, because remember, he he was already feeling pretty guilty because he had betrayed Jesus in a very disappointing time. And he wanted to believe. And the scriptures in John 20 tells us that the two disciples went home. Believing after having seen. So is seeing believing? Well, we see Mary Magdalene, you see. Uh, she, I'm not sure, probably can't keep up with the two guys that are running, gets there at some point, stays outside, and is weeping profusely. She can't contain her emotionalism. She's distraught. Someone has stolen the body of her Lord, and she has no idea where he is. And so after weeping for quite some time, she steps up and she looks into the tomb. And to her amazement, she sees two people standing there. And the Bible describes them as angels who are dressed in white. But undaunted by these two angels' presence in the tomb, that doesn't phase her or affect her faith at all. It's almost as if the two angels are not even present. And doesn't the Bible say that sometimes we entertain angels unaware? And she goes in the tomb and sees these two figures in the tomb and they're in white and they're angels. 
and she turns to them, and the Bible says that as she turns to them, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? You're looking for somebody who's not here. He's not dead. He's risen from the dead, but she, she's clueless in regard to their question. And so she turns to them and she said, I'm looking for my Jesus. I'm looking for his body. Tell me, please, where you have placed him so I can attend to him. Well, that's about the end of the dialogue that John tells us between the angels and and Mary. But then he jumps to another scene where all of a sudden Mary now is in the garden and Jesus appears. And isn't it interesting that as the, the sun is about to come up, you know, and it's still kind of hazy and dark and, and there's still some, some darkness there, Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And she turns to Jesus, whom she supposes in the garden, and said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus turns to her, and he says one word at this point. He calls her by name. You see, no one has ever spoken the name of Mary quite the way Jesus has said it before. And he says, Mary. And upon Jesus saying her name, she instantly recognizes the voice of Christ. And having recognized her name from the lips of her Savior, her, her heartbroken spirit is turned to peace and joy and enthusiasm, and she shouts, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she recognizes and realizes that Jesus is not dead No one has stolen his body. He's alive. Now let's pick this up here in our passage in John chapter 20. It's here that I want us to take a look at some aspects about this journey of faith in the heart and the life of a man called Thomas, who most of us know as Doubting Thomas. And the first point that I want to make, I want to see a message that is dismissed. There's a message that's dismissed. For we see in this text, in John chapter 20, in the verses that I've mentioned up to verse 17, we see where Mary is about to fall prostrate on her face before God and worship him. And most of the time when they did that, they would grab on to him and worship him and honor him and glorify him and praise him. And Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, what he's saying to Mary, and there's, there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but for time's sake, I think what Jesus is saying to her, this is not the purpose nor the intent of this moment. This is, this is not an opportunity for you to cling to me and to worship me. There's a greater purpose I have in mind at this moment than you bowing down and worshiping me. You see, time is of the essence, and I am concerned about my disciples, for I know where they are, and I know their despair and their despondency and their dejection, and I want you, Mary, to go on a mission to my disciples, and I want you to share a message with them. This is urgent. We don't have time for this. Go share this invaluable message to them. And then notice, he says, but go to my brothers and say to them, he unites with his disciples and calls them brothers, join heirs with Jesus and all that is available to him. And he says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, Mary was to go back to the disciples and say, he's not dead, he is alive. He has gone to be with the father, but very, very soon Jesus will return. 
he's going to come back. And you're going to get to see his resurrected body. Well, what does Mary do? The Bible says Mary Magdalene darted out of the, that moment, went and announced to the disciples. What does she say? She's so excited and so emotional, she forgets really about the message that Jesus gave her. The first thing out of her mouth, she says, according to the scripture, she says, I have seen the Lord. I don't think she said it just once. I think she said it multiple times. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And the disciples began to gather in that place, and they began to gather around her. And she proceeded then to tell the disciples all that Christ had told her. Christ is going to ascend to the Father, but he's going to come back, and he's going to be with you. Just hang on and hold on. But notice in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, notice the reaction of the disciples. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe. The words coming from Mary's testimony seemed as if they were a fairy tale. Here's this overly emotional woman who's been to the grave and she's distraught. They've already seen her one time burst in, all emotional, and two disciples have run out. They've not come back with the report. And here she is again saying these, these insane things. And it's like, it's a fairy tale, man. We can't believe this emotional woman. She's out of control. In other words, they dismiss completely the testimony of Mary and, and the message from Jesus. I think many doubters, many scoffers, many skeptics often dismiss the message of the resurrection of Christ. So they dismiss the message. So did Thomas. For I'm convinced that Thomas more than likely was with the disciples in this room on this occasion, and he joined the others in dismissing the message from this incredible testimony of the resurrection of Christ. Not only do we see a message dismissed, but we see a monumental disappointment. Notice in the text this incredible disappointment on behalf of Thomas. It says in verse 21, as we begin, Jesus said to them, well, we've skipped a couple of verses to get here, but let me tell you what's happened so far. The, the scene has changed. It's no longer early Sunday morning as, as the sun begins to rise. It's now later on in the evening on that same day, on that same Sunday. I think this is a good, good reason why I think we should have church on Sunday night. Can I get amen to that? Okay. And the disciples were together. Yeah, you were reluctant on that, I could tell. And the scene moves from the early to the later part of the day. And the disciples have been in hiding now. Now, while they've been in hiding in this comfort place that they believe in which they're very safe and very few people even know where they are, they've heard several messages. They've heard the message of Mary who's come with this incredible, outrageous, very lavish thing called the resurrection of Christ. They've heard from two disciples who are walking down the road to Emmaus who have returned to tell the disciples that they were with Jesus, they have heard the testimony of Simon Peter, who is also, as well as John, that we believe has been raised from the dead. Now, all of a sudden, they're in this upper room, and I can imagine being the good Baptist that they were, there was a lot of discussion going on in that upper room. Can you imagine that? About what one believed and the other believed, and there was a lot of discussion going on, and maybe they're trying to have a business meeting, I'm not sure, but there was a lot of discussion going on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus appears, and, and he's just standing there in their midst. It's, it's blowing their minds, and he says, peace be with you. This is the first peace be with you. And he shows him his hands, and he shows him his feet, as if to say to them, it's me, guys. Come on, boys, believe. I am 
I am not dead, I am alive. And notice then Jesus again says to them in verse 21, peace be with you. It's a second blessing again. And I think he says that because when, when like Mary, he speaks her name, she's filled with peace. When Jesus speaks these words, peace be with you, there's something about the words of Christ that fill his disciples with peace. And they're no longer distraught. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I sent Mary on a mission with a message. I'm about to send you on a mission with a message as well. And when he had said this, notice he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, he was sending them on a mission with a message. The message was the gospel. And the gospel was to reconcile men with God. And this was a special dispensation of the parting of the Spirit of God on, the, on these men because these men at this point needed an anointing of the Spirit of God. It was like many times in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and up until now, there was a special dispensation when God would give an individual the Holy Spirit's presence in order to do what he has been called to do and to proclaim what he's been called to proclaim. This is not Pentecost, but it's a pre-Pentecost experience. But notice verse 24. I think it's amazing that John records this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Maybe he was with them when Mary came back with her report, and they discounted it. But here, Thomas is not present. Now can you imagine Thomas not being present and all of a sudden coming back and saying, You missed it, dude! Christ has appeared and he showed up out of nowhere. We were standing, the doors are locked and the, the windows are locked and the shutters are locked and, and we were in here fearful lives and all of a sudden we were discussing what to do and talking about all the possibilities and bam, Jesus is here. Freaked us out. Man. And he showed us his hands and he showed us his feet and we were filled with, with peace. It was incredible. And Thomas goes, yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, really, we wrote a book about heaven. Right. Not going to believe it. He missed an opportunity. I wonder how many opportunities we miss. This was a monumental disappointment for Thomas. And it's something that's going to plague him from now on until he finally meets Jesus face to face. Notice in the text in verse 25, a momentary deflection. He's about to deflect now from the reality and the truth of the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. So verse 25, so the other disciples told him, and the word told him means that they continued to tell and continued to tell and continued to tell and continued to tell. You ever had anybody that stubborn? No matter how many times you tell them about the truth of the gospel, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to accept the reality of it. And you tell them and you tell them and you tell them, and they're completely close to it. It was a continuation, a persistent witness. We have seen the Lord, Thomas. You've got to believe. Ain't doing it. But he says to them, he says, unless, notice the condition. There's a prerequisite here, here. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, what's the prerequisite? I got to see it and I got to touch it or I'm not going to believe it. Forget about it. That's my condition. Unless I see it, touch it, and feel it and for myself, don't even go there, man. It's not happening. 
And he says, notice the position he's taking. I will never believe it. That's a double negative. I will never, never, ever believe it, no matter how much evidence you present, no matter how many times you testify that you've seen Christ, I refuse to believe it. He is deflecting from the truth. He's deflecting from having to make a decision. He's saying, I am not going to make a decision. I'm not going to decide. It's a condition that he puts no time limits on. He said, there's got to be a time. I've got to see it for myself or I'm not going to believe. But notice now a merciful disclosure in the text. Isn't Jesus merciful? Aren't you glad that he reached past your stubborn rebellion and your pride and reached down in your your sinful life and revealed himself to you in a way that was so amazing that how could you deny the reality of who he was? Do you remember that moment? Notice what happens in verse 26. Eight days later. Now here's Thomas Eight days later, stubborn, refusing, ain't moving, I will never believe. God makes him wait eight days. Must have been a very long eight days. Constantly hearing the testimony of the disciples, he's risen. No, he's not. Yeah, yeah, come on. You know what I'm saying? Eight days. Notice the week went by, Sunday again. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Notice what John says, and Thomas was with them. Where were they? Well, they're no longer in Jerusalem now. They're in Galilee. They found another hiding place. They're together, all of them now at this time. All 11 disciples are now counted and present in this place, and they are together. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but they're all in the room together. Although, it says, the doors were locked, John came and stood among them and said, same greeting, peace be with you. And when Christ speaks, they were filled with peace. It's been eight days. They've been waiting for Christ. And all of a sudden, he comes and he appears. But notice what happens. No one speaks. No one says a word, according to John. Jesus suddenly appears and says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. I think that's the real purpose for why he's here. He's got one of his disciples that's being pretty prideful and pretty stubborn and has put some conditions. And notice what Jesus says. Now, imagine you're shocked. You're Thomas. <laughs> and you've been saying, no way, Jose. I'm not going there, not believing till I see it, till I touch it. When he said that, when he spoke those words, was Jesus present? Was he? No. Jesus was not present. Okay? Now notice, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Jesus extends his hands and he says, look, you said you have to see and you said you had to touch. Now see it and touch it. What do you think happened to Thomas at that point? Dad, gum. He wasn't here in the room when I said that. How does he know? How does he know? Well, Jesus always knows. And he says, do not believe, but believe. Do not believe is a double negative. Remember Thomas said, double negative. I will, I will, I will, I will. Not, 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 not. And Jesus said, you will not disbelieve. Not, not, not. You will believe. Believe, Thomas. Notice the meaningful decision that Thomas places in the room in front of the disciples. Thomas answered him. Thomas has been silent up till now, wouldn't you? 
Wouldn't you be quiet up to now? He's here. Hope you didn't hear what I said. And then Jesus does that and goes, oops, he did hear what I said. I'm in trouble. You know what I'm talking about? I've been caught red-handed. And notice Thomas then finally says, my Lord and my God. Jesus, you have been raised from the dead. You are my Lord. You are sovereign. You are ruler. You are master. You are my Lord, but you're also my God. You are deity. You are, you are God in the flesh. I believe that you have been raised from the dead, and you are God, just as you claim you are the Messiah. That's his, that's his incredible, incredible decision that he makes in verse 28. But notice verse 29 Jesus gives this incredible, beautiful declaration to Thomas' confession. He says, Jesus said to him, verse 29, have you believed because you have seen? Now, I know that's in the form of a question, but I'm convinced that in this text, we see that Jesus is actually affirming the confession of Thomas. He's saying, Thomas, you have an authentic faith now. You truly believe me, but the reason you truly believe me is because you have seen and you have touched and you have been in my physical presence. You have an authentic faith and you truly believe that I am Lord and I am God. And not only am I Lord and God, but I am your Lord and I am your God. Notice it's personal because our faith in Christ has to be personal to be authentic he authenticates Thomas's faith because he claimed Jesus to be my Lord and my God. And he says, Thomas, your faith is authentic. But notice what he says to us today. This is for us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and that's me. Anybody seen Jesus? Anybody had an outer body experience and been met with Jesus in the sky and taken to the heavenly realms and sat on his lap? Anybody in here ever had that experience? Do we have to have that experience to believe in Jesus? Do we have to read about some little four-year-old who had that experience in order for us to believe in Jesus? And the answer is no. Because Jesus is telling us, as he's telling them, there's a time when I will ascend to the heavens And my physical presence will not be here, but that doesn't mean my presence won't be here. And he said, those of us who believe, in spite of not being able to see and touch, we are blessed. Not just happy, but we are blessed. Highly favored by God. But notice what he then says, he concludes, John does in his text. It's interesting as he concludes the text in chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I think if he had written everything that had happened, we'd, we'd, we'd have, you know, something like this. But he says in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why did he write the gospel according to John? Where do we go for truth? about the reality and the validity of the resurrection of Christ to the holy, inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God. 
It is a book that has survived more critics and have outlasted more movies and more four-year-olds than any other document I know. And as we open the text and as we read from John's gospel, he says, I have written it so that you may believe. Where do we go for belief? In the Bible, to the word of God. Save your money. Don't buy the book. Don't go to the movie. Open the Bible. And you'll learn that we believe in Jesus being the Christ, being the Savior as Lord of our lives, having the promise of an eternal life. How? Through the Scriptures. And when we come to the Scriptures and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God fills us with understanding of our lostness and reveals that Christ is the solution to our sin, that he not only lived a sinless, vicarious life and died on the cross for our sin and then rose from the dead, and once we place our faith and trust in him as our Savior and commit to him the leadership of our lives, we have the promise of not only abundant life in this life, but eternal life with Jesus forever. Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Not because I bought the book or saw the movie, but because I've read the book. And because he said it here, I believe it. And for me, that settles it. So the question is, what do you believe? What do you believe about the resurrection of Christ? For only in believing that he rose from the dead, as you place your faith and trust in him, where he becomes your personal Lord and your personal Savior, can you have the promise of a real heaven that's found through a real Jesus who really died on a real cross for sins that he didn't commit, your sins and my sins against God, so that through that death and our faith and trust in him, we can be reconciled with the Father and have the promise of a life abundantly in this life and an eternal life in a place prepared for those of us who know him called heaven. So what do you believe? I'm not saying what do your parents believe. I'm not asking what you might think you believe. I really want to know what do you genuinely believe? Is your faith authentic? For I am convinced that in America we have many who are culturally believers but not personally believers. Because Christianity sometimes has become a cultural phenomenon, not a personal experience of having placed our faith and trust in Christ. And unless you, like Thomas, can say, my Lord and my God, you're not truly saved. Let's pray.
Good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. Good to see you today. Happy Easter. Today we have the joy to celebrate the life of one more disciple of Jesus, a young man named Devante who placed his faith and trust in Christ. And we talked about his decision just a moment ago. He's been here for quite some time as one of our children, going up in one of our children's ministry and has decided to place his faith and trust in Christ and to commit his heart and life to him. So it's our joy to celebrate with him his new life on this great Easter day. So if you're his family today and you've come to show your support of Devante and his decision to follow Christ, would you join us in me in standing? Can I see his family if you're here today? Anyone else? All right, can we give them a show of gratitude as we celebrate what God is doing? Devante? It's our joy as a church family to celebrate the life that you found in Jesus as you place your trust and faith in him. So it's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Amen. This is Ashley, and if you're part of Ashley's family and you've come to celebrate with her today, would you all stand? <laughs> Ashley and I were talking about her decision, and Ashley, have you come to that place in your life that you know you've asked Jesus to come into your heart and be your savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life.